The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Thanks, Jared. Good morning, Restoration Southside. It's good to be with you. Uh, I went to high school here in Chattanooga, uh, just up the road from here, and had a great experience uh, with the exception of one class, my junior year of high school, uh, that I actually flunked. Uh, it was Latin 5. That's uh, four years of meaningless Latin uh, plus one more year. And the difficulty of the class was that uh, the professor thought we were advanced enough that he uh, never came. He just gave us some assignments and some lectures to watch on DVD. So after we realized that he was actually never going to come in and check on us, uh, we got bored, directionless, and disinterested and just started watching Top Gun. And that was uh, amazing until one day when the uh, headmaster walked in on a tour with some alums and confronted us and proceeded to flunk all of us. This, this season for the church has just begun to feel like that class where uh, nobody's coming to check on us. We're just watching stuff on DVD or online. Uh, there's no really accountability. And it's so easy to begin to just lose interest and wonder, should we keep doing this? Uh, why should we keep engaging in this? And how should we keep engaging in this? Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 comes right after Psalm 88. And if you know anything about Psalm 88, it is uh, one of the darkest, most difficult chapters uh, in the entire Psalter. It's an autobiography of somebody walking through personal darkness. And this psalm is written by Ethan the Ezraite, and that's significant because it's also the author of Psalm 88. And the two psalms are actually meant to be twins. Uh, and Psalm 88 is like a psalm about personal darkness, but Psalm 89 is about a group of people processing and going through darkness themselves. But there's something profound and amazing in this psalm, and that's that it models for us how a group of people can process and walk through darkness and then come out with, still with hope. So in, in this season where we can't meet together, uh, we're still sort of watching stuff online and even at times wondering um, how much should we care and get engaged in this. Let's, let's draw from this psalm some hope that will collectively help us to find hope and one day uh, when we can meet again and, and find together with the gospel. Let's, let's look at these th three things. One, uh, let's stare into the promise. Uh, two, let's learn from the psalm to trust when it's cloudy. And three, uh, let's begin to sing so that we can still trust, okay? So first of all, uh, let's stare into the promise. Um, hope that we need to sort of persevere and go forward as a church is by nature something that we externally need. Uh, when you want hope in something, you can't find it by looking within. It's got to come from something on the outside, and what the gospel wants us to do is not uh, look within our own desires, or our own willpower, but externally at the promises of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great British minister, put it this way. He said, in our Lord's love, we have the best motive for loyalty, the best reason for energy, and the best argument for perseverance. 
And what this psalm does is it's packed full in the first part of it of promises and things for us to look outside of ourselves to grab a hold of. And I want to give you two. Uh, the grace and, and the perseverance that we're, uh, that we're given of God's love for us. One, the grace, if you notice the beginning, it says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. And three times it's mentioned in the first eight verses, the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord is one Hebrew word, hesed. And it typically refers to God's covenant faithfulness that he has uh, bound himself permanently to his people, that he has made an oath, he has made a promise that he will never stop caring for his people in a particular way. And we learn the nature of that when we look further in verses three and four when he says this, you have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now there, the psalmist is reflecting on a specific text, 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord makes a, a covenant, an oath with David himself, where his throne and his reign and his kingdom will last forever. But the specifics of that teach us really what God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love really is. Because what happens is in 2 Samuel 6, David and the people of Israel bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, back into the city of Israel. And they had to capture it, so there's a huge celebration of it. And they bring the Ark back and put it in a tent. And uh, not long after it's in the tent, David goes into his palace and says, this is not right. Uh, I'm dwelling in a palace and God himself is uh, living in a tent. So he goes to the prophet Nathan and says, I think that... Uh, it's on my heart for us to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan, you know, being the good prophet says, go and do likewise. You know, if, if one of you comes and says, uh, you know, Alex, uh, God has put it on my heart to build you uh, a huge mansion by the beach, I'm going to say, go and do as the Lord has led you to do. But uh, what happens is when David goes to the Lord and says, I want to build this temple for you, God says, no. He says, you will not build for me, but I will build for you, which is incredibly profound and significant because in the ancient Near East, when you became a king, the first thing you did is you would build a house for your God. But God is saying to David, he says, I'm not like those other gods. I will not be appeased. And you do not do for things, you do not do things for me. You are to know me. And you are to know me supremely by one specific thing is that I am a God who graciously bonds himself to his people. And man, we need to grab a hold of that in order to find hope today. Do you understand that whatever has gone on for you during this pandemic and during your time alone, that neither your uh, failures or your pursuits for God have ever changed his love and care for you? that there is nothing you can do or you can run away from that will ever change how he longs to pursue and bind himself to his people. And he says, this is what I want to be known about. This is what I want to mark me. C.S. Lewis was once asked, uh, what makes Christianity so distinct? And he said, that's easy. It's grace. 
And right here, we're given this promise for us to hold on to and stare into that he is incredibly gracious towards us. But secondly, we're also told that his, his grace is not just a one-time thing. It is absolutely permanent, that it cannot lapse. Look back in the text with me. If you will, in verse 31, it says this. Uh, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 28, it says, My steadfast love I will keep for him for forever, and my covenant I will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as in the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, pause. Every religion would have the next verse say, then we're done and we are no longer in relationship. I will cast them off. I will be done with them. I will find a people who actually will follow my ways. But here's what the next verse says. It says, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with the stripes. But I will not ever remove my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Listen, he's saying there is no line we cannot pass. There is no desire that we can go where he says that's too far for me to take away my covenant steadfast bond to my people. He will never do it. We see this really beautifully in something that Jesus says in John chapter 6 uh, when he's preaching and he says this, all those the Father gives me come to me and whoever comes to me I will never, ever, ever drive them away. Puritan John Bunyan uh, loved that verse so much that he wrote an entire book on it called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And, and what he says in that book is he says, our hearts are so feeble and, and prone to believe that God himself is almost looking for moments in our life where we cross or come to lines where he can finally say, aha, that's too far, I'm done with you. And he says that makes us afraid to approach him and sure that he, he almost desires for us <laughs> to find something where he no longer has to care for us. But he says, listen, that verse uh, promises us that no matter what, Jesus will never, ever, ever turn his back on us. Bunyan writes this in a book. He says, we come and say, but I'm a great sinner. Jesus says, I will never cast you out. And we say, but I'm an old sinner. Christ says, I will never, ever cast you out. We say, but I'm a hard-hearted sinner. Christ says, I will never, ever, ever cast you out. We say, but I'm a backsliding sinner. Christ says, I will never, ever, ever cast you out. But I have served Satan all my days, we say. I will never, ever, ever cast you out, Christ says. But I have sinned against light, we say. I will never, ever, ever cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, we say. I will never, ever cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, we utter. I will never, ever, ever cast you out, says Christ. It's like this. If we were to all go down to the ocean, maybe in the Gulf of Mexico, after this service, like we just drove a caravan down there and everybody brought a bucket. And we stood there on the beach and we all dipped our buckets in and tried, you know, for a whole afternoon to just sort of make a dent 
in the Gulf of Mexico, one by one, just emptying thousands and thousands of buckets. It would be nothing like our basement that leaks. It, it, we, we wouldn't even make the tiniest of dent in the ocean, no matter how much we dipped in. Such is God's love and his promise to never, ever, ever stop caring for us that way. We can never dip in enough. We can never go down enough. And we can never, ever empty the vastness and the permanence of his promise. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her children's storybook Bible. She says, what is God's love like? It is his never stopping, his never giving up, his unbreaking in his always and forever love. And what we need to do right now in the church is just to stare into those promises. That he comes to us and says, I will do this for you. And I will never stop doing this for you. And we need to sit in that. Because secondly, we need to learn to trust that and grab a hold of that when life is cloudy. See, there are going to be times in life uh, when that picture and those promises that we want to stare into seem really opaque. And it seems difficult to grab a hold of and say, while that may be true abstractly, it's not true for me practically. Look back what the psalmist says. He gives all of these promises and tells us the gracious nature of God's love, the permanence of it. But then he says this in verse 38. He says, but now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. And he goes so far to say at the end of the chapter, in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? That, that gracious promise that you swore would never leave us. He says, where is it? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. He's making clear that there are times where it feels like uh, a, you love us, but B, there's a juxtaposition. That love in no way seems true for any of us. And what we're getting here is the great crisis of the Old Testament. Wondering, have the promises and the claims of God, have they fallen on deaf ears? Are they still true? And honestly, that's something that really resonates with us today, doesn't it? That there are things that we sing there are things that we hear, there are things that we read, and in moments they feel true, but when we get out into our relationships, when we get out into our jobs, when we go through crises, we wonder, is any of this true? Is any of it apply to me? Is any of it still worth singing about? Is any of it still worth living in light of it? And the suffering and the perplexities of life make it so opaque that you almost want to walk away and just flunk it all. And so what we have to learn to do in the midst of this psalm is learn how to grab hold of the promises in the midst of the circumstances of life and realize that the doctrine of providence frees us up to still believe, no matter what is going on, that the moon is round. Now, what do I mean by that? A pastor out of Memphis, Tennessee tells a story of a little girl 14 years old, who had contracted a, a, a severe type of cancer. And in her time in the uh, hospital, the last nine months of her life, she had a journal where she wrote out Bible verses and poems 
and thoughts and prayers. And after she lost her battle with cancer, uh, her parents uh, were cleaning out her room and wanted to keep things that were memorable and important to her battle. And they found the journal and the father picked it up and as he started to walk out of the room with it, the, the book opened and an index card fell on the ground. And the index card simply read this, the moon is round. And the father thought, what a peculiar, strange phrase that is. What did she mean by that? And he began to think, and he realized what she meant is that there are times in life when you walk out at night and you look up at the moon and you see a half moon. Other times you see a crescent moon. So sometimes there's a sliver of a moon. Other times you can walk out and see a bright, huge, full moon. But then there still are times and seasons in life when we walk out and you can't see the moon at all. It's a full eclipse. But no matter what you see and what seems clear to the eye, the moon is round. And what he realized his daughter had done is that she sat there in her cancer in the hospital bed and she said, God has promised to love me. He has promised to care for me. He has promised to know my name and to number the days of my life and to count the hairs on my head. And right now while I'm sitting in this bed, even though I don't have any hair, and I'm going to die at 14 years old, she said, I will grab a hold of those promises and believe things are true even when nothing in my life makes sense of it. And she said, even though nothing seems like he loves me, nothing seems like he cares for me, I will grab a hold of that and I will believe and declare to myself to get through this season that the moon is round and God's love has never, ever changed. And man, how can we learn from that 14-year-old girl? That when we look out at the circumstances of our life, how easy it is to look at full eclipses and think, all of that was a sham. He in no way loves me. He in no way cares for me. He in no way is taking care of me. But what we have to do with the psalmist is we have to grab hold of those promises and say, even though we can't see it, it is still true. And you know how we do that? We look to Jesus. We look and stare into his face and learn the providence of his life and apply it to our own lives. See, there's a place in John's gospel where Jesus is called uh, the light in the life of men. And as you read the gospel of John, uh, there's places that seems really true. Like he meets Nicodemus in the darkness, a man who thinks he knows uh, life and philosophy and truth. And uh, he is completely in the darkness. And Jesus shows him uh, the light of life and shows him the way. And then the next chapter, he meets a woman at the well who's building her life on everything empty in this world, and she's lifeless. And Jesus promises to her to be the life that she actually was chasing in every part of her life. And so we're getting this testimony in a full moon that Jesus is the light in the life, but there was a place where he in no way seemed like he was the light in the life. See, on the cross, Jesus was in a day of darkness, and there was no light, and it seemed foolish to think he was the life of men because you're staring at his death. But days later, and what we can understand and read now in the providence of God 
is that when it looked like it was only darkness and death, he was becoming the light and the life for all of us in the midst of the darkness and the death. See, when Jesus was dying on the cross, nobody sat around and thought, you know, this is just the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. God and his wise plan is saving the world and atoning for all of our sins through this man's death on a cursed cross. How, how wise is God and how good and how much does he care for us? Nobody saw that. Nobody ever ever had that thought on Friday. They walked away sad. They walked away dejected. They walked away utterly confused about what had happened. But on Sunday, when he walked out of the grave, what it did is it reinterpreted all of the things that had happened and realized that God knew exactly what he was doing, making Jesus the light and the life through the darkness and the death. And what we have to do in 2020 in the midst of circumstances that feel like darkness and death, is grab hold of these promises in the face of Jesus so that we can live in the freedom and the providence of God in his care for us and his wisdom for us in the way that he cares for us. See, you and I, we live on Saturday. We, we know that Friday has happened and we are hoping and banking on Sunday coming. But when you're living on Saturday, connecting the dots of the promises of life and the circumstances never seems to make sense. See, rarely in the moment can you know that God really is caring for you in the wisest of way. And the only way out is that you have to say and know that the moon is round even when you can only see half of it or none of it at all. See, God's promise to always be gracious to us and to be permanent in his grace for us, it never, ever changes. But what sin will do is cloud us in a way that we never can connect that. And so what providence does is declare for us over and over again that this is true. And so thirdly, what we have to learn to do is we have to learn to sing so that we can trust that. See, what does it say? It says in the first verse, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, from the immediate reading, um, we're wondering, does this mean we'll just put earbuds on and listen to praise music and work through the circumstances that make no sense in our life? Absolutely not. No, this psalm was intended to be read and sung and thought out uh, in, the, in a community like yours. Uh, it was meant to be sung in the midst of the life that they were actually going through when none of it made any sense at all. And if anything, that's comforting for us because what it does is it tells us that A, the psalmist is showing us you do not have to have a happy face and be 100% convinced of something in order to sing these things. In order to declare and say that the moon is round, you don't have to see the full moon in order to sing that. But you also need to know that the people who do sing this are often singing this through pain. See, this man was not singing this song like, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. None of it makes sense, but I will do it with a happy face. In fact, uh, Ligon Duncan argues he's probably singing through blinding tears. 
And it's probably saying, I don't want to sing. I don't feel like singing. I don't know how to sing right now. In fact, Lord, if anybody made a case against me and said, prove to me why we should sing right now, I couldn't do any of that. But I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. You have to begin to move past the feelings of our circumstances and grab hold of what is absolutely unmovable and what is utterly true, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In spite of me seeing all of that, slivers of that, or none of that, in order to keep walking and to keep going forward and to keep meeting together and believing that this is true no matter what we can see. And see, if we don't do this, we'll end up, you'll, you'll end up having the physical health of someone like me. Now, what do I mean? I mean, I don't know what your relationship to the gym is, uh, but mine's pretty terrible. We broke up a long time ago. And the reason is because it was all based on my desires. Now, any of my friends who are in fantastic shape and work out all the time uh, will, will tell you this. If you want to get in shape and you're basing it on your feelings, that's never going to happen. Because nobody goes to put on the running shoes and goes out for a jog or goes to the gym with 100% desires, uh, with incredible excitement. There are moments we look forward to those things. And actually, the more you do it, the more you look forward to it. But in the immediate moments, there are a lot of times when you start to do it and you want to give up right away. Uh, there's a lot of times where everything means, seems to make more sense. Uh, there's a lot of times when uh, you get hurt and you don't think it's a good idea. And when you come back to it, you think, you know what, I enjoyed not doing this at all. What's the difference? Well, what's the difference is we end up less healthy. And look what the psalmist is pleading for us to do is to say, like the gym, do the wise, healthy thing in spite of the times that you don't feel like it. See, we have to sing when we can't see if we ever want to see and be able to sing with a joyful heart ever again. And let me apply that uh, to maybe two types of people uh, that are living in these seasons. Uh, for some of you, um, this uh, quarantine and staying at home and staying out of corporate worship has been difficult, but it has in no way dimmed the goodness of God's grace and His promises and His care for us. And, uh, and you've sat at home and you've read and you've done everything you could to stay encouraged and well. And you're doing okay. But when corporate worship begins again, and we can begin to do community groups and be again uh, it might be late summer, and here's how Americans are, though, with our summer. We'll say, that, well, the church is open again, and that's great, but, you know, I've sort of enjoyed this routine, and I've actually done well on my own, and I've read, and I've listened to sermons at home, and I actually even, even enjoy this thing uh, across the camera. And we think, well, if I, you know, going down there, what would I really miss out on if I didn't go to that? Let me ask you this. Have you ever considered how much your absence would cause someone to miss out on you? See, see, people who don't see 
most need somebody who can see and who can sing with confidence about what they know is there or not there behind the clouds. And what that means is your presence for those of you who can see and can grab a hold of this is vital for when you can get back together. You are needed more than anything because what people need who can't see are someone who can see. And the other group of people, for those of you who this has been so hard and so lonely and so debilitating that you're wondering if it's just gonna be a full eclipse for the rest of your life and that this is all a sham. Listen, like the gym, don't, don't refuse to come back. Listen, come. There is a place in um, David and Jonathan's life where David was having a hard time and wondering if God's care for him was still true, if the promises that he made to him when he was a little runt were going to hold up. And it says, Jonathan came to David and encouraged him. And what the Hebrew word for encouragement is, is it means to strengthen the grip upon. And the image is this, is that David's, uh, his assurance of the promises of God was slipping And his knowledge and belief that God's care for him was intimate and personal for him, it was like a hand letting go quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And what Jonathan did is he came and took his hand and strengthened it back upon, he strengthened his grip back upon the promises of God. And what that means is that if your grip is slipping, you don't need to look within to the willpower of yourself to try to rekindle some sort of spiritual magic so that you can sing and see this again. You need somebody else in your community to come and strengthen your grip and grab a hold of it for you and pull you back up so that one day you can see what they can see. And you know what? What one friend told me about looking at the moon in the midst of a half moon or a crescent moon or even when it's gone, is that if you look up and you stare enough and you look long enough, you can begin to see that shape even in its darkness. And you can stare into the darkness and see that the moon is round until one day when the next day comes out and it's a half moon. And then one day in your life, then it's a full moon again. And so we listen, Look into the moon and see the cross and the promise of God to love you in the darkness of Jesus so that one day you can taste light forever. And just like the hymn says, listen, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. In the things of this earth, all of the circumstances that we're going through right now that seem so strange, that seems so out of touch, that seem like his care is gone and the moon is forgotten. In the midst of Jesus' face, they will grow dim in the light of Jesus' glorious grace. Listen, don't stop seeing that the moon is round and that God is good. Let me pray for us that he will do that. Lord, there are so many people whose lives have just been turned upside down. The staff of this church, uh, those 
in and around the church where it just feels uh, fearful, it feels anxious, it feels frustrating, it feels cynical, it feels aggravating. And we, uh, Lord, feel different lengths from your love. And I pray that we could all, Lord, just see uh, the shape of your goodness, that no matter what we're experiencing, it is still round and good. Uh, Help us to believe that so that when we come back together again, we can sing and believe in Jesus' name.